it should help us to have faith that God is going to take care of us in the darkest of times, uh, when he comes back to judge or when we have to uh, pass out of this life personally. So Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says that we are waiting for our blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So last week we talked a little bit about Abraham's bosom. Anybody who's not in this, who wasn't in last week's class, have any idea what Abraham's bosom is? Yeah, it's the intermediate state, yeah. Uh, So there's there's a parable Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16 where he talks about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus, and Lazarus sits outside of, out of the rich man's home and begs all the time, and the rich man just ignores him, and he lives in, in, uh, in affluence and, and has all kinds of wealth and prosperity. And then they both die, and the, the, uh, the rich man goes to a place of torment, and Abraham is carried away to this place that's referred to as Abraham's bosom. It's just that he's... He's resting on Abraham's side. Uh, it's a paradise that he's in. So uh, <clears throat> we talked a little bit about hermeneutics of parables there and how, how we should, there's always like a one main thing that a parable is, is trying to get across. And in that parable, <clears throat> it's basically uh, that how you live in this life will carry over to the next. And a lot of the book of Luke, if you're not familiar with the theology of Luke, Luke really likes to call out the wealthy and he likes to remind the wealthy that just because they're wealthy doesn't mean that they are going to exist in a paradise in the life to come. <clears throat> so uh, there's lots of little details in that parable that we could take and create all this bad theology out of. But the, but the parable wouldn't work if we didn't understand that both of the men are conscious uh, in this intermediate state. And so the, ri- the, the rich man is begging Abraham to send Lazarus back to earth to warn his, uh, his family uh, to, to avoid coming to that terrible place. And Abraham says they have the law and the prophets. So there's also some good theology of scripture there that uh, Abraham says, even if somebody came back from the dead, if they are not believing the law and the prophets, then they will not hear somebody if they come back from the dead. <clears throat> Which is also a little foreshadowing of Christ is going to come back from the dead, and there are those who aren't, aren't going to hear him, even though he comes back from the dead. All right. So the next lesson in eschatology, sorry, sorry for this, but just happened to land in this class. Uh, it is the topic that I am the worst at. I, I am terrible at Roman Catholic theology. So... Uh, mainly because I grew up here in Burke County in the Bible Belt. I probably have known three Roman Catholics in my entire life. Uh, this, is, this is Baptist land. I was telling Peter that there's one Roman Catholic church in town that I know of that's probably doing a little better now because there's a lot of migration from other places. But I never even knew it existed when I growing up here. So, <clears throat> Purgatory. Anybody want to take a stab at what purgatory is? Mm-hmm. 
pay, pay for sins that happened before they died and hopefully be able to get out. Right, yes, Something yes. Like yeah. So I've drawn too much stuff up here. So I have to erase some of it. So this is the idea of Roman Catholic idea So, at baptism, Roman Catholics believe that at baptism, your original sin is washed away. So, in your baptism, original sin is washed away. But then what becomes the problem after that? Sin. Yeah, you keep sinning, right? And so, as you sin, you have to deal with those sins. And so, they have different ways of dealing with those sins, and they have these different categories of sins. Some of this stuff is very complicated. I'm glad we don't have to think through this stuff as Protestants. So you can commit a venial sin, and I'll just have an example up here. Art said this was him as an example. Uh, Venial sin would be like Davis walks in here, and if you don't know, this is my cousin Davis. Uh, And he... He says something to me in passing that offends me, and I'm mad at him for a moment. But I get over it and keep going. Mortal sin would be, Davis walks in here, I'm mad at him, and I punch him in the face. So, if you commit a venial sin, uh, from my understanding, now if you have a Roman Catholic friend who understands this better, I'm just telling you, from my understanding, Venial sins won't send you to hell or to purgatory. So, but, but Roman Catholics, they, they seem to want, to want you to be careful about that because, because these venial sins can escalate into mortal sins and maybe you could, maybe you could think, oh, I'm still in the area of venial sin, but, but you're really escalating to mortal sin. And so like even hardening your heart and anger over time, holding on to bitterness, those kinds of things can become a mortal sin. Well, once you've committed a mortal sin, that has to be dealt with. So how do you think Roman Catholics believe that you deal with these mortal sins? Confession is one, yes. You have to go to, a, to confession. And what is, uh, what is the priest going to tell you to do in confession? Penance, yes. So acts of penance. Uh, I don't know any modern-day examples of these, but I know like, uh, what is it saying, Hail, Hail Marys, rosaries, yeah, yeah. So see how bad I am at Roman Catholic theology? But there are these acts of penance that you have to do to atone for these mortal sins. Now, the problem with this is that Roman Catholics understand that you are going to commit so many mortal sins that you're not going to penance your way out of all of your mortal sins. So then, what happens when you die and you have all this leftover sin? You have to go to purgatory. And while you're in purgatory, you are suffering. And it is, I don't know if they would say that it's as bad as hell, but it's, it's hell adjacent. It's very much like being in the torment of hell. And you are burning uh, you are 
purifying your sins away. You're suffering for those remaining sins. No, uh, well, only uh, only believers go to, only believers go to purgatory. So <clears throat> they, the, I do. I mean, they have different. They have sainted people who I think those people would escape purgatory. Uh, they probably do believe that someone people can get to a place where they have they have penanced their way out of enough mortal sin that they can skip purgatory. But I think they believe the the vast majority of people will go to purgatory. Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. If you have questions about Roman Catholic theology, there's a good website called Catholic Answers. Uh, I've, I have visited it a, it a lot this week because <laughs> of my my low understanding of Roman Catholic theology. <clears throat> so. This doctrine of baptism has caused a lot of confusion over the years. It would almost seem like you would want to put off a baptism, right? Put it off as long as possible and then do it towards the end, and you'd have less of these to get rid of, and you'd have less time in purgatory. Uh, They don't tend to do that. I don't really know. I guess it's because you're taking a risk, because since you can't go to heaven without being baptized, uh, they don't want to take that risk. Many of you might know, like a lot of the early church fathers put off baptism. Tertullian's well known for this. He he didn't get baptized till on his deathbed. And it was because of this type of, uh, they had a, a difficult understanding of baptism in, in those centuries. But uh, it's interesting to me that while you're in purgatory, you can't do anything can't do anything but be there and suffer. Who else can't do anything? Christ, yes. So you got Christ up here. You got God the Father and the Spirit. The Trinity can do nothing to get you out of purgatory. But who can? Huh? Relatives, the church, they can do things to get you out of purgatory. What is the, uh, what's the very famous doctrine that popped up during the Reformation that was a lot of the reason for the Reformation? Indulgences. Who knows what an indulgence is? Yeah, you pay money. Now, the Roman Catholic Church today likes to, uh, they want to say that that they never really encouraged indulgences. I don't believe that. I mean, there's lots of church leaders that during that time that encouraged it. But it is possible that there, are, there were people outside the church who took indulgences maybe further than the Roman Catholic Church wanted them to take them. So I can, I can give them that much credit. But... Uh, Basically, they were teaching that if you gave money to the church, that would take time off of a relative's time in purgatory. And uh, today, they don't like the word indulgences, I don't think. I mean, they will teach it, but they basically just say that it's giving of alms. 
And so like charitable giving has become uh, the way to, to give an indulgence to the church to get time off for your relatives in purgatory. So <clears throat> what does anybody know what Martin Luther said uh, that the Pope should do if he has the power to uh, release people from purgatory? He should, yeah, he should do it for free. He should do it out of love. Why doesn't he just do it out of love? So, to me, that's always been one of the best arguments that I don't understand that anybody, I don't know that anybody's ever come up with an answer for. Too lucrative. <laughs> okay. I'm trying to see if I lift anything out here. <clears throat> so, purgatory. Can anyone tell me passage in scripture that teaches purgatory? All you good Protestants don't know, do you? So open your Bibles to the book of 2 Maccabees. Uh, If you don't, if you didn't get this, there's handouts in the back. So, uh, Grab one of those because I, I had to copy and paste Second Maccabees in there for you. <clears throat> so, if you're, if you're not familiar, there is a group of books that the Roman Catholic Church in 1545 uh, made them part of the canon, and they're referred to as the Apocrypha. Uh, some people refer to them as the Deuterocanonical books. Uh, I can't really name a lot of them for you, but there's First and Second Maccabees are some major ones. Uh, this is the history of uh, of Israel during the time of of the Greek uh, persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes, and uh, Judas Maccabeus was the hero uh, of the Jews at this time. And uh, if you don't know the uh, the Jewish festival around Christmas. Hanukkah, it comes from from a story in the book of Maccabees where they are in the temple, I think, and there's a lamp that they that they believe was miraculously lit uh, for this entire time. That the oil shouldn't have kept it lit, but so that's why they light the lamps during Hanukkah. <clears throat> so this is an Old Testament source for them. Second uh, Maccabees. I've got uh, 12, 39 to 46 here. Uh, Judas Maccabeus, he was a military leader, and he came across some, some fallen comrades. So these men had fallen in battle, and they start looking through these men's clothes, and they find these little tokens. You see there in verse 40, it says, they're sacred tokens of the idols of Jamnia. So... Judas and his men understood that these men had fallen. They had died in, in their sins because they had, they had been worshiping uh, this false god. And they had these little sacred tokens to the false god. So uh, the text says that Judas turned to prayer. I think this is in maybe the next verse, like verse 41. 
turned to prayer, beseeching that the sin which had been committed might be wholly blotted out. Uh, he also took up a collection, and he sent it to Jerusalem to, to provide for a sin offering. Uh, so in doing this, he acted very well and honorably, is what the text says. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead, that they might be delivered from their sins. So in Maccabees, there seems to be some type of interceding, uh, praying for, taking collections up for, and making some atonement for the dead. There's no mention of a place of purgatory here where they're suffering. And, uh, you know, a lot of Roman Catholics even question whether this can be used for purgatory, but some of them do. Uh, since this isn't really a text that we see as authoritative, I, I just want you to be aware of it. I'm not going to deal with it a whole lot. Uh, you might have a, maybe you guys have Roman Catholic friends who will try to say, well, Second Maccabeus says this, and you at least know uh, where that, where that uh, teaching is coming from. All right, let's turn to a very fun text, or First Peter chapter 3. This text has probably had the most doctoral dissertations written on it. It's probably been more uh, theological articles written on it than any other. I was listening to uh, Dr. Kruger, who's the president of my seminary. He was talking about this passage, and uh, I agree with him. He said it's probably the most difficult passage to interpret in the entire New Testament. So... Uh, First Peter chapter 3, can someone read, let's see, just have Mike read uh, 17 through 22. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached under the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the putting, of, uh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto Him. Okay. Who wants to take a stab at telling me what this passage means? I mean, okay, yeah, yeah. Actually, I have talked to Carl a lot about this passage because she said well, that. We never really got that far. Of what we've been talking about. I mean,
You are you are definitely presenting one of the major major views of this passage, yeah. So, right, right. I I have won. I am victorious over you. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the difficulties of this passage, the questions that have to be asked, is when, who. And what? So, Laura, according to your view, what what was the when? Like after his death? Okay, so during the three days. During the three days. And the who in hers was uh, demonic spirits, is that right? Okay, okay, so so souls of men uh, who who were in hell now, but is that right? Okay. So in hell, but they lived during the time of Noah. Okay. That's the view I thought you were given. That that is a major view, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this one actually is a little on the lesser side. Uh, so the what would be victory, <clears throat> and the Greek helps us out a lot here. The word, uh, and by saying a lot, I mean none at all. Uh, the word that for preaching or proclaiming. It's actually the same word I have in my Titus text today. It's just keruso. It is the common uh, word for preaching. It's not, uh, it's not the word like evangelize or giving the gospel. It's just preaching. So it could either be that Jesus is preaching the gospel or he is proclaiming victory. And that's why you have these difficulties here. Uh, so another view would be that still during the, the three days, that he uh, preached to fallen angels. And this view, maybe this is why you skewed away from this view. Uh, This view seems to necessitate a interpretation of Genesis 6. If you're familiar with the sons of men intermingling with uh, uh, the I can't remember what what the term is for the daughters of of the of one of the lines, yeah. Uh, but this intermingling, some people say that that is demons uh, creating offspring with with human women, and their offspring were these giants. Uh, so it's not an inter- interpretation that I believe in, but it's a very popular one. So you'll hear this in a lot, and so they believe that that those fallen angels in Genesis 6, are the ones that Jesus went back to and proclaimed his victory over them. Uh, 
So that would be another victory. Now, uh, the Nephilim, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the uh, Roman Catholics, interestingly, they can use this verse to prove purgatory, but it's not really a big verse for them to go to. Uh, You're going to be interested to find out there's really only two verses that they use that they pull things out of. So the Roman Catholic apologist, Jimmy Akin, the guy from Catholic Answers, I listened to a little speech from him yesterday. He basically went through first and gave all the views that, that I would get from like Dr. Kruger or if I went to a Reformed commentary and, you know, said these are the options for, for us. But then at the end, he kind, of, he kind of gave a little like this could be purgatory. So he kind of, he kind of said, you know, since we believe in purgatory, we can shove purgatory in here. And Jesus could be preaching to people in purgatory and the preaching could have something to do with their process of purification. But even he seemed a little skeptical of that. And th- I mean, this guy's a Roman Catholic apologist, and he's really good at what he does. Uh, <clears throat> but he wasn't, he wasn't promoting this passage as teaching purgatory, but he wasn't saying that you couldn't put purgatory in here. The thing that was interesting to me is what it was that he didn't really seem to understand how the preaching did anything to, to increase their their purification, or why it's just at this particular time. Uh, so he, he didn't have, I mean, I'm not, I'm not downing him because none of us have really good answers to what this passage means. Uh, there are those who believe, so there's also a view that the Old Testament saints couldn't go to heaven. Uh, they had to wait in this kind of like purgatory or limbo, not purgatory, but just this limbo place. And uh, they had to wait on the work of Christ to be done. So it's like they're in this waiting room. We don't really, really know what it was like, but uh, they, weren't, they weren't in the presence of God. And so they had to wait. And so this is Jesus going back and preaching to them. And so then they were able to come into Christ's presence. That's, that's one view of this. Uh, another one is that uh, I don't think any Protestant or Catholic would hold this view, probably liberal Protestants would hold this, is that Jesus actually went back and preached to people who were in hell and gave them a second chance, uh, like, a, like a second chance after death proclamation. I would say that this is probably the more mainstream evangelical view, that it's fallen angels, and he, you know, when he descended into hell... He, uh, he preached victory over these fallen angels. I, I like the view that says that the when, is the days of Noah. And the who... <clears throat> Is the men before the flood who are now in prison or hell? So you see that the the preaching took place to these men during the during the flood or before the flood, 
but those men are now in prison or hell. And uh, if you look at verse... Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to click clean this up if I can. For uh, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Uh, that the, so the first two words in verse 19 in Greek are in ho, in ho. And ho can mean either uh, which or it can mean whom. And so I'm saying it's whom, not which. So in whom, in the Spirit. In the Spirit, Christ preached through Noah to the men before the flood. So in the, the Spirit of God, in the Spirit of God, through the Spirit of God, Christ through Noah... Spirit of, of Christ in Noah preached to the people before the flood. Now, I'm not dogmatic about this because this is, this is a difficult passage, yeah. But personally, I feel, and I do feel like the, the message is just preaching. We know that, the, that Genesis tells us that that Moses preached to the people, or maybe Hebrews tells us that, that he preached to the people all the time while he's building the ark. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Noah, thank you. Noah preached to the, uh, the men while he was building the ark. None of them believed him. None of them knew what rain was. They thought he was crazy. Uh, and so I feel like this fits in best with the overall context of 1 Peter chapter 3. So... Ladies that have been in that Bible study should know well what is the context of First Peter chapter three. Suffering, suffering, and what kind of circumstance? So were the sufferers the the majority, or did they would they feel like the minority of the people in their culture? Yeah, right. You should suffer for doing good, and isn't that what Noah did? Noah suffered for doing good. And did Noah see converts? No. No. But God saved him. God protected him and his whole family. And I think Peter's point is that he's going to do the same for you. And the Spirit of Christ preached to those people during the days of the flood. And Christ still overcame. And the people and Noah and his family were still uh, faithful. And they got through that suffering. And did, did the kingdom of God cease to exist because they were in the minority? No. We know that it expanded greatly, especially after the time of Abraham. So, like I said, I'm not dogmatic about that interpretation, but personally I feel like that's the best interpretation. And I like to keep my hermeneutics simple. To me that's the simplest way to look at it. Well, see, that's the problem, too, is uh, what is prison? See, nobody can really figure out, because that word's not really used anywhere else. (laughs) Yeah, 
they formally didn't obey. So they're in they're in hell now, but they formally disobeyed. He he preached to them in the past. They formally disobeyed in the past, and and now they're in prison. So it's confusing. No matter which view you take, it's confusing. Go ahead, Carrie. It says he was taken from prison and from judgment, and it's speaking of Christ. So uh-huh. in that book, it's using, I don't know what the original text is, but it's using prison, we know, for hell. Yeah. Well, see, that's, I, that's one of the points is, is that prison can be used for hell. Yeah, yeah. Oh, one of the, go ahead, Lee. says, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120. It goes down, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the uh, of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in his eyes. And it, it, isn't it amazing that one man out of everyone mm-hmm. found favor? Right. And that his family was blessed on account of his faithfulness. His faithfulness, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't get any description of anybody's faithfulness except for Abraham, except for Noah's. One of the other things I forgot that, that, uh, that pushes me towards this view is this, because uh, Christ, where was he during the three days before the resurrection? Was he? Huh? Where does he tell the thief on the cross he's going to be? Paradise. Jesus didn't literally go to hell. Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you are going to be with me in paradise. So to me that kind of erases the whole Jesus descended and Jesus did all these like atoning proclamation deeds in those three days. It sounds to me like he went to heaven and... uh when he was resurrected, he came back from the dead. Uh, the the uh, I don't want to get into all the different views of the Apostles' Creed where it says he descended into Hades. Uh, okay. <clears throat> so, if you if you read Calvin's commentary on the Apostles' Creed, he he says that descending into Hades is talking about end of the grave, and that Jesus experienced the entirety of hell when he was on the cross, when he says, Father, Father, uh, why have you forsaken me? That was the entirety of hell. Jesus didn't descend into hell. He didn't have a fist fight with Satan. Uh, these are real interpretations. I'm not joking here. There's, there's some pretty outlandish interpretations of Jesus going down. There's people that believe that Jesus actually sunk into hell and, uh, and suffered the flames of hell uh, for three days and came out victorious and, like, had this battle with the devil. Uh, You can get us into some pretty crazy stuff. 
when Jesus, you know, pointedly says, I'm going to be in paradise. So, and he says it is finished, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 that had to do with, uh, I'm not sure exactly why he said that. I don't know that that has anything to do with him going down into hell. But that, that's, uh, that's something to do with his new, his new glorified body. Yeah, yeah. You know, Jesus was able to teleport, things like that, things we can't understand about the perfect body. Carrie's got something. Each is appointed once to die, and then the judgment. There's a verse in Scripture that mm-hmm. says that that would eliminate all this aspect of purgatory. Yes. Yeah, Hebrews chap- chapter 9. Okay. Mm-hmm. It is appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment. Yeah. And there's lots of verses like that. Uh, Paul says that, uh, I'm torn between two things. Who does he say this to? I think it's the Philippians. Uh I want to go and be with Christ, which is better. But if I stay, that's better for you. Uh, and his point there is that if I die, I'm going to Christ. I don't know how Roman Catholics, maybe they say Paul was a saint, and that's why he went to Christ. Uh, Paul also says to be absent from the body is what? Be present with the Lord. Yeah, so there's lots of verses like that. Uh, I don't know if I have time for us to... Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll try to deal with this as quick as I can. The main point, so we took a lot, I knew it was going to take a lot of time talking about this first, first Peter passage just because it's so much fun. Uh, the main point that I want to take you to take from this is a hermeneutical point. Now, who knows what hermeneutical means? Right. Yeah, just how you interpret things. So, so, an interpretive principle to take from this passage is that you do not create a major doctrine based on a passage that nobody really understands. That's just, that's just not good theology. So, all right, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. Uh, can you have, just have uh, Nathan Graybill read that for me? By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire." And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Okay. Now I can tell you, I'm pretty sure that this is a passage that Roman Catholics do use. And you can kind of see their logic here. You see somebody who is... They're saved, but things are burned away. And they're kind of saved through, what's the last phrase say? Uh, Yeah, yeah. He's saved, but only as through fire. Now, to me, this passage is pretty simple. 
uh, the context of this passage is Paul is saying that the Corinthians, they like Apollos, and they don't like Paul. And they're kind of choosing this person or that person, this ministry or that ministry. And Paul's point is that Apollos does part of the ministry. I do part of the ministry. But the ministry's foundation is Christ. And if you build upon the foundation of Christ with the selfish ambition of Paul or the selfish ambition of Apollos, then that stuff is burned away. But the minister, you know, maybe he's, maybe he's done some really selfish things to try to build his church or build his ministry. The minister will still be given grace and he'll be saved, but all the things that he thought he was building, that he was building with the wrong uh, motivation, is going to be burned up. It's going to be burned away. And so uh, there's somebody who likened it to a, a merchant who has a ship full of goods, and he has a shipwreck, and he loses all the goods, but his life is saved by another ship. So, so uh, the point Paul is making here is that God will judge ministries. Now, I do think a point could be made here. This text could be used to say that God is going to judge believers, and he will judge motives and things like that, but... But the main point of this text is, is ministers and ministries. So, but for me, there's one part of this text that just completely takes it out of the purgatory realm, and that's verse 13. Can anybody tell me why verse 13 takes it out of the realm of purgatory? What is going to disclose it? What's going to disclose the motives? The day of judgment. When is the day of judgment? Yeah, that's the final judgment. That's not the intermediate state. This is talking about the final judgment. This is not talking about some time between uh, your death and the second coming, or your death and then your interest into heaven, this is talking about the final day when we will all stand before Christ. So, the day will find it out, not purgatory. Nathan? I don't... No, I, I, oh, that, was that in this passage? Talking about Hebrews 9? Yeah, I didn't want to have to explain Hebrews 9 right now. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think Hebrews 9 is talking about a general. Uh, you die and then go into the judgment. I don't know that Hebrews 9 is saying that you're ushered immediately into a judgment. But there is some type of judgment that takes place because you either end up in paradise or you end up in hell. So, yeah. So there's some type of judgment. Don't really know what that is. I think Matthew 25 makes it sound like like the final judgment is believers and unbelievers are divided and God judges everything on that day. Uh, but there has to be some kind of like, I know I'm not going to, I know I'm not going to be cast into the lake of fire because I'm in the presence of, of Jesus Christ right now in the intermediate state. So I don't know. There's some, 
there's some people that have explained Hebrews 9 in like this philosophical, uh, like it's a, a, like a saying, like a general saying, uh, which I think it could be that, but I, but I still have difficulties figuring out exactly what it means. So, I think it's 27. I have a whole other class where I'm going to talk about that. That's, why, that's the only reason I even know where it is. <clears throat> okay, uh, so the two passages that are the main passages for the Roman Catholics when they deal with purgatory is Habakkuk 1.13. So take that to, uh, take that to Nathan. Yeah, Nathan, I'm going to make you find Habakkuk. Don't you wish you had one of those labeled Bibles with the tabs in it? What's the verse? Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. Okay. <clears throat> Hold on, before you read it, Nikki, will you turn to Revelation 21, and I'm going to have you read verse 27 when he's finished. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Okay, so the point here is Habakkuk is saying, what about God's eyes? They are pure. And you can't look upon what? Wrong, yeah. Can't look upon wrong, can't look upon corruption, can't look upon sin. Okay, Nikki, read Revelation 21, 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay, so this passage is very similar to Habakkuk. It's saying that God's pure, nothing impure can enter into his presence. Now, the problem here is that Roman Catholics have a strange view of sanctification. They, they think that you have to finish your sanctification in purgatory. So I showed you before the reason for purgatory has more to do with their, with their view of uh, baptism, their view of really a free will, uh, absolute free will, uh, their view of justification, these are really the things that, that feed into their view of, uh, of purgatory. So they think that, that when you die, you're not going to be completely pure. So you have to go to purgatory because God can't be in the presence of anything that's impure. So what's the reason that we would say that that's not true? That has to do with Christ. Well, they think it just, I, I mean, honestly, it can occur in, from my perspective because uh, if you have sinned against an infinite God, then you have to have an infinite purification. So, but I don't think that they understand that. Yes. Let's say that again because I want that on there. Um. 
he who knew no sin was made sin for us mm -hmm. that we might become his right, the righteousness of God in him. So there was an exchange that went on um, that we just automatically take on his righteousness and right. his belief. Yes, yes. Basically, the hymn, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. The, the thing is, we can't pay it. We, I mean, we, never, we could never be in purgatory long enough to pay off the debt of our sin. That's why Jesus had to be God and man. He had to be able to, to atone uh, for the wrath of an infinite God on behalf of finite man. So the atonement is at the center of the bad theology that creates the need for purgatory. Uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I've got to hurry, i only got five minutes here. Uh, have Andrew read, read that for me, Marcus. Hebrews chapter 10, 11 to 14. And this is basically the same thing that Carrie said. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus sitting down is a big deal in the book of Hebrews. Does anybody know why? Why it's a big deal? His work was done. Yeah. The high priest in the Old Testament, he never sat down because the work was never done. But when Jesus was a high priest, when he atoned for sin, he did it one time, it was efficient, it was sufficient, and he sat down because the work was finished. That's why there's no need for purgatory because the work is finished. <clears throat> now I've got one more thing that I'd like to go through, but, if, but I will give it up if you guys have any questions or comments you want to make. Yeah. The work that Christ did was sufficient, you know, once for one for all. Yeah. And I don't understand how there can be any Roman Catholic priests left if they're reading their Bibles because it changes you. I mean, God does the work; He changes your heart, and it's His His way, mm -hmm. His finished work. His love, I mean, how great a love. And so I don't know how you keep preaching from these few obscure verses about purgatory. Well, I mean, they, they have different ways of deal, how they deal with Christ's atonement. Uh, like I said, I don't know a whole lot about Roman Catholic theology, so I feel like I misrepresent it when I try to stretch. But I feel like they, they think that the atonement is there to help you not that it's there uh, to do the whole work. And so, like, go ahead, Clark. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> they are not restricted to the Bible. In fact, the Bible is relegated in its significance um, to a lesser reference. Mm -hmm. The magisterium of the church... Uh, and the traditions of the church 
are what the Roman Catholics rely on for these various doctrines that they propound. Uh, as, as a, for instance, uh, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, mm -hmm. those are the very words of God. And yeah. so that is equal to Scripture. Anyway, the whole point then being that they've determined all these various uh, ways to avoid damnation as a way to justify a man working for his righteousness. Mm -hmm. If you take this idea of purgatory, uh, there were relics used by the church. If you were to kiss mm -hmm. a relic that was a piece of the cross of Christ, it would release you from 14,000 years of suffering in purgatory. Yeah. They had various uh, benefits from all these various acts of righteousness that they proposed to us. There's no rhyme or reason to any of it. It's just all foolishness, but that is Roman Catholic theology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, who was it that said there's enough pieces of the cross around to build the ark? <laughs> so somebody said something like that. <clears throat> yeah, it's a very uh, almost superstitious type of religion. And I heard, uh, so I, I, it's probably odd to us, one of the things Clark said was that they don't believe in sola scriptura. So they believe that councils and synods and church authority is equal with scripture. Not that they don't use scripture, but it is equal. And the church interprets scripture authoritatively. Uh, I actually heard on that Catholic Answers show, I heard somebody called in to ask a question about a friend. They said they're a Roman Catholic and they have a friend who's Roman Catholic but is having a difficult time with the, the doctrine of purgatory and they can't find it in the Bible and they're actually thinking about leaving the church because of the doctrine of purgatory. And uh, the guy, I can't, well, the guy, his name I just mentioned, uh, he, said, he said, well, the one thing you're going to have to talk to this friend about first is they probably believe in sola scriptura. And you got to get them away from that. You know, that's, that's the problem. Uh, because they're, cause they think they're going to find purgatory in the Bible. They got to get away from that idea. So uh, I thought, thought that was very telling of, uh, of where they're coming from. So that just means the scripture alone is the authority. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we've got time for one more comment if anybody's got one. All right, let's pray. Father, we are thankful, very thankful for the hope that we can have in Jesus Christ because of the finished atoning work that he performed on our behalf. We're thankful that he can call us brothers, uh, thankful that we are the bride of Christ and that we are immediately ushered into the presence of the glory of God when we pass from this life to the next. Lord, we thank you that we can have hope from your scriptures. And as we study things concerning the end times, we know that all of our hope is based on the work of Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd bless us as we continue worshiping you today. We pray that all that we do would be done for your glory. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.